take our Bibles together and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. As we continue our work through the book of Matthew tonight to Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. To an account of two very much interconnected miracles, to an understanding of, even as that title of our sermon speaks, the salvation of the desperate of having to deal with that understanding even here of each of the characters in this narrative, and then being able to find ourselves in this story this evening, of understanding what that word speaks to us concerning that which we do and that which we're not called to do at all, that which we're called to trust and believe by faith. So let's hear these words together, paying a special attention to the reading of God's word because it is what he's prepared for us tonight before the foundations of the world that we would humble ourselves before it. And so while he, while Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside... He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went all through that district. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he apply it to our hearts and lives this evening. Let's ask him to do that in a moment of prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you bring us before ancient words and familiar words that are ever true, words that are to change us, words that are to be received by us, And Father, no matter the vessel that they are brought in, no matter the words that are spoken, Father, no matter the brokenness, no matter the ways in which we might build callous against it, Father, your word will not go out void, but it will accomplish that for which it is sent out. And so, Father, would you bless the words that I speak, that, Father, you would bring into them, importing all, Father, that which you wish to speak to this people, that which has been prepared, Father, that which hasn't been. That, Father, you would speak to each heart where they are. That, Father, we would go forth encouraged by your word and led forth in its grace. And so, Father, hear us and work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when we speak of that word desperation, there's really something that works in us in a way that we don't really like. That certainly if we're dating, we don't want to meet someone who's desperate. We see that and we know that we need to get away. But if desperation becomes even worse than that, there are greater struggles in that. That if someone is desperate for food, they might be tempted to steal. Maybe kids watching the movie Aladdin and got to steal to eat. Got to eat to live. We're, We're desperate. And so we go that way. When we're desperate for for anything, we usually make bad decisions. 
We might try to bathe those things in words like desperate times lead to desperate measures, but so often when we're desperate, when we're trying to find that perfect gift two minutes before the the birthday party or we're trying to figure out what to say before we go into that meeting, it doesn't always turn out well. And we get so worked up and we get so caught up in that moment of desperation that the problem comes then and not that we're We're trying to do something, but because we focus on what we do. And so when we get desperate, I have to figure out a way to fix this. I have to figure out a way to do this. What am I going to do? How am I going to provide? And so that desperation starts to work in us. A number of terrible thoughts. It works a number of terrible decisions. And it often leads to a lot of terrible consequences. But what if we stopped in the midst of our desperation and asked for help? What if we took just a couple seconds to pause and to breathe? Perhaps to recognize, I'm not called to do anything in this moment at all, but to trust, to believe, to know that that this will be all right, that things will be taken care of. And how much more for us as Christians to recognize that in our moments of despair, in our moments of desperation, that we don't have to give ourselves to doing things. But that's what we always do. In fact, that becomes the burden so often when we come to the Word of God and we say, Pastor, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Just tell us what to do. And there's certainly warrant for that in the scriptures. Those things in the scriptures are called imperatives. They're commands. They're the things that God would have us to do. But the problem with that is we get so frenetic in terms of tell me what to do and how do I do it and maybe I'll do it and maybe I won't that we haven't taken the time first to say, what have you done? God, what what are you working? What have you called me to do? What have you called me to be? Do we pause to stop and say, God is my refuge and my strength, that God is my helper, that God is my hope? Which then allows our actions to flow from that in a way that's helpful and right and true because it's humbled itself before God. And it's acting out, out not in in a frenetic kind of way, but in a faithful one that this is what God would have us to do in response to that of who he is and what he's done for us and what he's promised. And you see, that's the wonder of this text tonight because as we come to it, there's that bit of, pastor, tell us what we have to do. We see this this synagogue ruler who goes to do something. We see this ill woman for a long time go and do something, but you come to the end of the story, which is always the focus, and there's someone who can't do anything. That the story still comes down to a woman who is dead, to a girl, 12 years old, who is there and can't do anything at all, who can't change her life in any way because she doesn't have one. So what are we to do? Is that really the first question 
that we need to come here with or receive the word with? No, that first word is who are we coming before? And who is speaking to us by way of that word? We come to one who has come. The very reason that he has come is to bring salvation to the desperate. And so we see that in each of the characters shown to us in this story. And yes, there is action to be taken. There is faith to be known. There is faith to be exercised. But it's still about the one they come before. It's still about the one that they believe. And so the first of those accounts, as you see in your bulletin and you see those points, we first come to one who is showing resignation. Look at your text again. While he was saying these things, verse 18, Behold, take the time to look and examine who comes to those people. Behold, a ruler. And here we would have a better understanding, a synagogue ruler. One of the heads of the local society. One who would have been looked at as a respected figure. A Jew among Jews in that way. Perhaps not Pharisee level, but certainly one who is faithful. Here is someone in that ilk, in that station, who has come to Jesus. And instantly as we hear that, this should bring scandal. What's he doing? Why would he go to Jesus? Of what need does he have? These these are the opposite sides. But what do we keep reading? He comes in and he kneels before him. That word kneel is that word kids prostrate that we read and sometimes think sounds so funny. But what that is is he kneels down. Literally, you can take this word and say he comes in and he worships him. And this should lead to all kinds of questions for us. Why would a Jewish synagogue ruler come and worship Jesus? Why would he kneel before him? Why would he humble himself in that way? It's because he's desperate. He has nowhere else to go. Why? My daughter has just died. We know from the other accounts in Mark and Luke that she hasn't died yet. That, that happens on the way. Luke, in his very meticulous way of writing and order in that way, says he finds out it there. But, but he's left his daughter. He knows her condition. He knows what he's going to hear. And the law can't save her. And his righteousness can't save her. And that's the struggle we have as fathers, isn't it? Because we, we want to fix things. We want to be able to come And we want to be able to do the thing. It's why our wives sometimes get annoyed with us and even our kids. When they come to us with something, they finally have to say, I don't need you to fix this. I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to hear me. And even then we struggle. Because I want to do something. I want to fix it. If somebody said something wrong, I want to roll heads. Like, let's go. My daughter's died and I can't do anything about it. My righteousness can't do anything about it. 
my request can't do anything about it. But you can. That that desperation leads him to a proper humility. It's what that word in your notes is, resignation. He's resigned to the fact that I can't save her. And it's a beautiful word in that way because of how he comes. He comes to Jesus. He comes speaking to Jesus. He comes bowing before and worshiping before the only one who could provide this request. He's resigned to it. And yet he speaks faith. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. It's a call from this man resigned to the fact that Jesus is powerful. I know that you've healed other people. I know that you've done awesome things. Would you please do it for me? Thank you. Just lay your hand on her. I don't need you to do anything else, but I need you to do something because I can't. He's sweetly resigned. And so as we hear of this father in the story, have we come before God, have we come before Christ in that kind of way, sweetly resigned to the fact that, Lord, I, I can't do anything apart from your power, apart from the way that you work, apart from your hand, which is always, almost always in the scriptures, that speaking to us of you are God and powerful and able to work change by way of your hand and by way of your authority. And she'll live. You, Jesus, can work life. And for us, those that want to fix our own life, those that want to depend on the law, those that want to cling to that promise in that way, those prideful enough to still come and say, yeah, Jesus, I know you've done something, but my work can add to that, and I'm really good, and I'm really holy, and I'm really righteous. It doesn't work that way. Are we sweetly resigned? Are we humbled before the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we come to him, to say there is nothing that I can do? Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Are we sweetly resigned to him, seeking the help and the comfort that not only we need, but that which we cry out for for our children according to that promise? That we cry out to those that we know who are lost according to the promise? That if any confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness? That he will receive the worship and the praise of those who seek him with all their heart. That's what this father has done. And what does Jesus do? He rises. He gets up. And he goes. There's a beauty in what Matthew is speaking here. He doesn't have to talk about any of the other details. He got up and he followed him. Hear that. He follows him. Jesus' call always, always, even as we heard this morning, is come and follow me. 
But this faith that this man has been given, that resignation and humility that he's been brought to, the Savior says, I will follow that. Here is a right example and a true example. Here is a picture of a father in his love for his child. That Jesus has come not to do his own will, but the will of his father. And so he will follow along with his disciples who are called to follow him and to see this thing that they will do for this one who shows sweet resignation. But then there's a second person in the narrative. There is this woman that we've heard about since our very earliest Sunday school days. There's one in the narrative who seeks restoration. For as Jesus goes, behold, again, Matthew uses that same term again in verse 20. Look at this. Take the time to recognize a woman. And already, some of the girls among us are saying, well, why is that a big deal? But within the culture, she wasn't a big deal. We're thankful that we've moved past that in the right ways in recognizing the image of God in both male and female. But within that society, we see a woman. We also see a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. That number 12 becomes important because in Mark's account, we hear that the synagogue ruler, who we find out his name there is Jairus, his daughter is 12 years old. Here is one who has died. Here is one in this woman who has been living death. And maybe you read that and you say, is it really that serious? I mean, she, she has a discharge of blood. Why is this such a big deal? Why would it be such a big deal to Jairus as a synagogue ruler? Why would it be a big deal among the people in that community? She is ritually and ceremonially unclean. And so already we need to deal with in terms of the pain and the sorrow and the struggle of what this is. Yeah, I've been bleeding for 12 years. There's nothing good physically about that. Mentally, when am I going to get better? When will I be well? Some of you have had illnesses for for months and months and months and months and you stop and you're like, when is this ever going to get better? You become hopeless. You're despairing. You're desperate for a cure. But for this woman, it's worse. Because she's separated. This kind of discharge, that kind of uncleanness, separates her no differently than leprosy. She's unclean and she needs to let people know it. I mean, for us, sometimes we're so private, we don't even want to let the the pastor know that we're having surgery or, or something's going on, right? Everybody in town knows. And they know to stay away from you. They know not to look at you. They know to keep separate so that they wouldn't become unclean either. What a lonely existence. If she had not been married, we're not sure her age, she couldn't have gotten married. If she had been married and this happened, she would have been separated from her husband. She has nothing. She has no hope. The other gospel writers speak of just how bad it is because she spent all that she had trying to find a cure, trying to find some way of help and hope. And it only made things worse. 
she kept working, trying to do all that she could. How can I fix this? How can I make myself better? And it doesn't work. She's desperate. She's brought low. I've got nothing. There's no way. There's no cure. I'm terminal. But you begin to think about the woman and the discouragement and the way that she began to think about herself. I am unlovable. I am someone who shouldn't be touched. I'm someone that you shouldn't come near. I'm someone not worthy of compassion. Lord, I long to be restored. I need to be brought back. I need to be made clean. And so she comes up in a move of scandal to the Jews as they would have read Matthew's account. What is she doing? She's unclean. If she touches Jesus, he's going to be unclean. Is he? You see, here Jesus is asserting his authority. Here Jesus is asserting who he is and what he's come to do. Because we sinners, as we touch each other in that way, at least in terms of this woman and her interaction with other people, they're all making each other unclean. Her uncleanness would travel to them, who would travel to someone else, who would travel to someone else. But that's not how it works with Jesus. That he can be touched and he remains clean because he's holy. Because he's true God of true God. Because there is nothing that you have done. There is no part of you that is so unclean that you would make him less holy. There is nothing you could confess in this room tonight or keep silent in your soul tonight that Jesus isn't able to cleanse completely by way of his perfect righteousness. But in this act of faith, she goes and she touches him. Touching just the fringe of his garment, the little tassels on the side, the very smallest touch, something unnoticeable. I don't want to draw attention. I've got to do this super stealthily. There it is. Jesus swings his robe down low. She touches it. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. But it's better than that. Because in the Greek she says, I will be saved. If I just touch him. If I'm just touched by him, I'll be saved. I'll be clean. I'll be right. But then something beautiful happens. Because certainly within the power of Jesus, it certainly could have just skipped to the next verses. She's made well. It's done. Let's, let's get to the young daughter who's passed away. But Matthew writes verse 22. Look at it again. Jesus turns. He takes notice of one who for 12 years wouldn't have been turned to but turned away from. 
and he sees her. He looks at her with all of his eye, in all of the compassion that he is, in all of the truth and all of the blessing. And he says, take heart, daughter. Be encouraged. Know what's been given to you. Know what's been entrusted to you, daughter. But then what does he say next? Because here's still that knee jerk for us. But pastor, she had to touch him. That, that's the act of faith. Call us to it. Reach out for Jesus. Amen. Let's go home. That's not what Jesus says. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your faith. Her activity is in response to something. Imperative, coming after indicative. What has Jesus done for you? He's given you faith enough to think, if I touch him, I will be clean. I will be saved. It wasn't about her at all. It was about him. It says in Hebrews eleven six, and without faith is it, it is impossible to please him. Hear it, for whoever would draw near to God. Yes, yeah, she comes up behind, she comes up stealthy, she's not asking. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It was about her faith pastor, just tell us what to do. Do you have faith? Is it evident? Is it real? Has it changed your heart? Has it changed your life? Are you captivated in that? Because if I come to this pulpit and I keep telling you what to do, and you don't know Jesus, and you don't love him, if you don't believe in this way, all I do is send out a group of hypocrites and Pharisees, Self-righteous folks who are bound up in their work instead of in Jesus and the faith that he's given. And that's a problem. And I will stop preaching altogether if that's ever the thing that I'm called to do from here. Do we know Jesus? Are we captivated by faith in such a way that we believe much more than he exists. But that he's able to save me, even me. That in just that one touch, I am fully saved from all of my sins. I am delivered from the tyranny of the devil. I know that he watches me, that he sees me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. Do we know that assurance first? Do we have that kind of faith first? For instantly the woman was made well. The very moment she believes. It wasn't about the touch. She reaches out her hand, but his hand was already touching her. She reaches out in faith, but that faith was already given to her. You see, we can't do anything apart from him working in us first. Do you believe that? Truly believe that. 
You're not going to work restoration with God on your own. Not by your own actions. Not by the things that you do. Only by way of the gift of faith that restores you through Jesus Christ in union with him into a right relationship with your heavenly father. And if we're unconvinced by that, we see that Christ in continuing his journey says in a sense, let's up that desperation level and let's come to one then securing resurrection. And you're like, well, that's an active verb for someone who has passed away. Right. Look again, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he came. He still follows through. Yes, they're interconnected and intertwined, but he comes. But what does he see? He sees the flute players. He sees the crowd making a commotion. Here in that sense is the beginning of the funeral service. You see, it wasn't a long and drawn out thing like ours are where we're waiting for family and arrangements are made. There wasn't any of that. When someone passed, you moved quickly to that kind of burial. And so here, the man, being an elevated member of the society, has money. And so he hires these flute players. He hires these mourners. This is how important she was to me. This is what it is. It's a scene of death. That's all that's here. That's all that's seen. Because what we see with our eyes and what is plainly before us is one who has passed away. And Jesus enters there into the sadness and the sorrow and the grief and the mourning of that scene. Able to say what by his authority? Go away. You're not needed here. This isn't what's happening. I'm not going to stand for this. Go, get out. For the girl is not dead but sleeping. She's just asleep and I'm here to wake her. And to the people in the crowd, they would have been like, "Um, you just said the same thing. It'd be like saying the the girl is young and she is young. (laughs) Sleep was always used as a euphemism for death. And notice the response then here. The sides are made plain. They laughed at him. It's a laugh, a word that has a a coloring to it of derision. They spite him. They hate him for what he said. This is what it is. She's dead. Are you serious, Jesus? That's all that's here to see. But Jesus doesn't see as we do. That even in the judgments we make about others that we're the noisy commotion, that we're the flute players. And Jesus says, no, I, there isn't someone dead here. There's someone alive. And so the crowd gets put outside. Get out of here. That kind of unbelief has no place here. Get out. But when the crowd had been put outside, verse 25, he went in. And he, 
secures resurrection. Someone who is dead cannot reach out for the hand of Jesus. Someone who is dead in trespasses and sins cannot reach out to be saved. It is the heinousness of those who call, just believe, just reach out. The spiritually dead can't. This girl cannot reach out to God. But Jesus reaches to her and takes her by the hand. And the girl is raised. She's resurrected. New life, an abundant life, not because of anything she did, not because of her father's request, not because of the illness of the woman for the same time as hers, not any work in any way by her, but God. But Jesus Christ reaches out to the dead and brings life. Because of what Jesus has done and does, there is hope. Because of what he does, that is why we preach. Not because of what comes out of my mouth, but because of what he does with it. That's the wonder. That he reaches out and he saves those who are dead. But too often that's where we leave the story. The girl rose. Isn't that great? Look what God has done. But I think in all three cases, we don't understand our own desperation. It's fine for the story. But what about me? What about us? Are there any dead among us? Are there any that need to be resigned before the Lord? Any that need to be restored to fellowship with Him? Any who need to be brought to life? Hear Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and you were dead. Do we understand our desperation? Do we understand who we are in our sin before a holy God? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we don't understand that, if we don't make that plain, People aren't just a little bad or have a little problem or need a little Jesus. Just come and let me touch your robe. Just come and lay a hand and I can do dead in trespasses and sins. Desperate. Made known to us in this man who can't do anything to help his daughter known in a woman who cannot heal herself, known in a girl who cannot raise herself. And so if we're going to keep up with the rhetoric of what do we need to do, we're missing it. We're missing it. What has Jesus done? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive, raised us up together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And until we get that, the rest of it's broken. It still acts of brokenness and sin. But what if instead, in that invitation tonight, what are we called to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in His work. Believe in what He has done. Come to Him sweetly resigned saying, Father, I got nothing. I can't fix me. I can't fix anyone else. Would you come? Would you come in your power? Would you come in your authority and change everything? What if you came truly seeking restoration? Not resting in anything you've done or in anything you've been told or how you've been shamed, or abused, or mocked, or neglected. Any of the ways that you've been cast aside, thought little of, discouraged, and came seeking restoration from one who always sees you, and knows you, one who is able to do far more than anything you could ever ask or imagine. What if we came sweetly in that way, I just need to be touched by him. That, Father, you would give me faith in Christ by the power of your spirit to believe everything you've done and to stop putting trust in the things that I've done that only make things worse. What if we came securing resurrection? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To come saying, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, but you can give life. And not because I asked for it, but simply because you chose me and you loved me and you've given me life. A life now that I am raised up to live, knowing the blessing of fellowship that is to come. So if that's what we give ourselves to, That's giving ourselves to that in the fullness of what Christ has done in the faith that he's given. So maybe we're not desperate enough. Maybe we haven't been convinced enough or convicted enough of our sin. But if you know that, if you know what it is to be desperate, to come to the end of yourself completely, then believe in the Lord Jesus. Find your life fully in him and then go out in love to serve him, calling out to your neighbors of this same God who works in that resignation, who continues to work restoration and who has promised even in the worst of sinners, those dead in sin, to work resurrection. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of this word and for the wonder, Father, of what your Son shows to us, of the great thing that he has come to do, not just to to help, not just to show compassion, not just to heal, but to save and save to the uttermost, to bring life even from death. And so, Father, in the ways that we run ahead of the story, in the ways that we are so ready to fix and help and be a part, that we haven't understood our sin, our death, our desperation, in the ways that we haven't brought, been brought fully low to recognize that there is nothing in me that warrants any of that attention, any of that compassion, any of that love. And yet in that way, by way of your grace, Lord, come to us. And Jesus, swing your robe down low to us. And come near to us and take us by the hand. And raise us to life now and forever. In the beauty of what you have done. In the life that you have lived. In the death you have died. In the promise that is ours seated at the Father's right hand that which your spirit is a guarantee of in our hearts. And so, Father, in that understanding of that desperation, but also that marvelous redemption, Father, send us out in grace, send us out in gratitude, send us out to serve, proclaiming that gospel of your Son. And may we share it with our children, Lord, and we're thankful that we might give our offerings tonight to the Christian Ed Fund. Father, to help families as Christian education continues to rise in cost, Father, to be able to do a good thing, of a desire, Father, to be helped. And so, Father, we pray for each homeschool family here too, provide for them. Each child in Christian day school, Lord, Father, work in them. Father, for all of us, might we continue, Father, to invest in those things, in the best things, of continuing to lead our children before this Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.